In science, when trying to replicate the effects of an experiment, one must have all the same elements of the original project. In Hollywood, when trying to replicate the effects of a breakout hit, all you apparently need is money, a script, and actors willing to jump in, even if they weren't in the original. This episode's film may not be a lightning rod of awesome, but we're going to do our best to prove to you that Son of the Mask is not that bad. Welcome, welcome, one and all, to It's Not That Bad, the podcast that looks for A grades in B movies. Now, every now and then, we like to talk about sequels, or for lack of a better term, suckwels. This is definitely one of those occasions, because we are now going down the road of Sun of the Mask, and returning to the show, but now at 6.40 a.m. Toronto, Lyle Robichaud, who some of you will remember from the Batman Forever episode. Lyle, welcome back to the show. How you doing, man? I'm doing great, Jason. I'm so excited to be back, even though we're talking about a movie that is very close to my heart like Batman Forever was, but when I went back to watch it, it didn't hold up nearly as well. I, I was about to say, so when we were talking about getting you back on the show, and this is the film that you pitched, uh, the first thought that crossed my mind is, why do you hate me so? Because <laughs> I, I actually hate myself, because much like the Batman Forever uh, episode, this is kind of the same thing. When I was a kid, I actually loved this movie. I loved the Mask series, and I thought Son of the Mask was great at the time. But thankfully... Uh, time and experience has kind of uh, reshaped my opinion. Yeah, I'm, I'm starting to question the things that you used to watch as a kid, given that this is now twice, and we're like, yeah. It's like an intervention is needed here at this point. I, I think so. I think I need definitely need to, need the time machine to go back and tell my younger self to get some taste. Exactly. Here, let me show you the good shows, the good movies to watch, you know, younger me. Trust me when I say you're not going to like this when you go back and rewatch it. But before we go down, son of a mask road. It sounds like a swear word. Ah, son of a mask. Before we go yeah. down this <laughs> road, we are going to take this sequel and trailerize it. W.C. Fields once said, never work with children or animals. W.C. Fields did not make this movie, which stars kids, animals, and Jamie Kennedy's dogged pursuit to capture Jim Carrey's childlike energy. It's Son of the Mask, a sequel no one asked for, and barely related to the original. When a man puts on a mask and makes love to his wife, that's when the craziness starts. And not in the good way like you want. They'll create a child filled with powers and madcap antics that leads to madness and destruction. But not in a fun way like you want. It's all because of a mask created by Loki, the god of mischief. But not the good Loki, like the one that you want. Look, there's no sugarcoating this one. Just watch early Looney Tunes and itchy and scratchy episodes, and you know all you need to know. Jamie Kennedy stars in Son of the Mask. Rated PG for parental godliness. (laughs) 
uh, parental godliness got me. <laughs> I, I I had to sit there and watch and go like, oh crap! There's Thor. There's Loki. It's like Discount Adventures. Even though uh, my notes, right? My notes for this are like three pages long. I was just like, I've I've forgot parts, and then when they happened, I was just like, I thought this was so cool at one point, like. Yeah, this is one of the situations where you go back and go, what was I thinking? What was I on? And why did my parents leave me alone with the remote control when I was a kid? Oh, yeah. And like, I remember when this came out because I, I love, I would say The Mask with Jim Carrey might be in my top 10 favorite movies of all time. So I think what happened was like when I was really young, I watched that one a lot with my dad. So when the sequel came out, I just didn't have the thought process in my mind to go, oh, well, the sequel's not, maybe not that good because it's, doesn't have Jim Carrey. I, di- I didn't have that kind of bone in me yet. I didn't think about movies that way. So I went, saw it, and I was just like, it's more of the same. So it's fantastic, right? Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't. No. <laughs> okay, so let's get into who's in this film. This movie stars Jamie Kennedy, Trailer Howard, Alan Cumming, Stephen Wright, Cal Penn, Ben Stein, and Bob Hoskins. However, there is an almost starring in this one. Apparently in the role of Tim Avery, both Jack Black and Ryan Reynolds turned down this role. And I'm like, oh, you could have had such a better film. Such a much better film. I really think that's where a lot of the root of it comes from and why. Because I do think that this is like six different movies crammed together. But I also think that it's just Jamie Kennedy trying to be Jim Carrey is is the whole epicenter of this and you know going back to batman forever if we've learned anything you know from tommy lee jones if you try to be jim carrey you're going to fail yeah you can't out jim carrey right you you just can't do it he's got this own style about him that it's just he made the mask character the mask it's transferable but it and like i'll get into this more as we get into the plot and how far it goes but you have to be a different kind of zany i think oh yeah However, in the role of Loki, as played by Alan Cumming, apparently Michael J. Fox was considered for this one. And I'm just like, huh? That one doesn't make as much sense because I did read that too. And there's a lot of almost casts in this if you if you go down the rabbit hole because I think there was a lot of excitement surrounding it because the first one had done so well and was such almost like a cult hit. And it, it did basically launch both Cameron Diaz and Jim Carrey in a way. They were both... They, they were on the radar, but then once that came out, it really skyrocketed them both. So I think everybody was very excited about this going forward. And it doesn't surprise me about the Jack Black and Ryan Reynolds connections either. I think, honestly, Jack Black kind of sounds bang on for something like this. Oh, my God. If Jack Black at this like at this point in his career did a mask film, it would slay. Same thing with Ryan Reynolds, too. Yeah, he's very funny. And with Jack Black, I just don't know, like, how can you turn that volume knob any more up than it already is, right? <laughs> We'll turn it to 11. That's one more than 10. This film was directed by Lawrence Gooderman, who previously directed Cats and Dogs. However, this is his last film as a director. It's like, it's like anytime you get to that point, it's like he would never direct another film ever again. Yeah, it's kind of like the based on the true story at the end, like and he was never seen. It was like the like at the end of an 80s sitcom where it's like so and so went on to become a military officer and blah, 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 blah. Right. He had never directed. He would would go on to never direct anything else. But it feels very cats and dogsy, if that makes any sense, because I watched cats and dogs a lot when I was a kid as well. And it definitely has the same 
the same fingerprints all over it. Yeah, there was there was a charm to cats and dogs. There really was, and you know maybe part of it's you know Jeff Goldblum just being Jeff Goldblum. But there was a charm to cats and dogs. There was no charm to this film at all. No, no. It Even was, if they tried to manufacture it. Yeah, it was written by Lawrence Kazan. I apologize if I messed up your name, but this was your first and only movie as a writer, so that's on you. That being said, Trailer Howard hasn't been in a theatrically released movie since this one. However, she was in the TV series Monk, so it's not like she hasn't been working, uh, which is good, because she's actually, in personal opinion, I think she's actually quite good in this, but this was, so far, her last theatrically released movie. Jamie Kennedy himself called the finished movie that was that was after extensive cuts, quote-unquote, an ADHD cluster. So that tells you everything you need to know when the star says, oh, dear God, I'm in that. It was also kind of a hard break for him as well. I think he's been in maybe 10 things in the last decade. None of them as big as this was uh, in terms of marketing, essentially for theatrical releases and stuff like that. I don't think he was in anything that had this much money behind it since this it other than alan cummings really it pumped the brakes on a lot of careers well uh, yeah because i mean bob hoskins is still bob hoskins and alan cummings is an absolute yes. gem um i mean trailer howard like we're you know being in monk and that series ran for a long time i mean theatrically wise yes it did however like work wise i mean she still got quite a bit of work um yeah and cal Penn as well cal Penn's been in a lot of great things since then yeah i mean this, this is you know basically a, a footnote for him because he's barely in it but but let's get to the accolades here and we're gonna need a we're gonna need a little bit here so settle down there is at the 2005 golden schmoes award this film won for worst movie of the year at the 26th Razzies, it was nominated for Worst Picture. It lost to Dirty Love. Jamie Kennedy was nominated for Worst Actor. He lost to Rob Schneider in Deuce Bigelow European Gigolo. Oh, my God. Alan Cumming and Bob Hoskins were both nominated for Worst Supporting Actor. They lost to Hayden Christensen for Star Wars Episode Three. Really? There's a whole, there's a whole, there's a whole nut to crack into there that we can't get into today because that's unfair. Right? I don't think that's deserved at all for for I for any of those three because no nobody there should be there because honestly I really think Alan Cummings is one of the best parts of this movie Son of the Mask right but but even Star Wars you want you want to rip on him for for Attack of the Clones okay but Revenge of the Sith you put some damn respect Arguably on that the Star best Wars prequel. right Arguably the best of the prequels yes I mean that's graded on a curve but here we are. Jamie Kennedy and quote unquote anyone stuck sharing the screen with him were nominated for worst screen couple. They lost to Will Ferrell and Nicole Kidman for Bewitched. The the film was nominated for worst screenplay. It lost to Dirty Love. However, it did win worst remake or sequel. And then, oh, it goes on. At the 2005 Stinkers Bad Movie Awards, this film led the pack that year with 10 nominations the next closest films were both bewitched and the dukes of hazard with seven it was nominated for worst picture it lost to alone in the dark jamie kennedy won for worst actor it was nominated for most painfully unfunny comedy that lost to deuce bigelow european gigolo 
it was nominated for worst song for Can't Take My Eyes Off You. That lost to These Boots Are Made For Walking by Jessica Simpson from the Dukes of Hazard, which I'm gonna, I'm, I'm sorry. Her cover actually wasn't that bad. Can't Take My Eyes Off You. I was about to say that's you. another yeah. one. Yeah. That's another one that doesn't really feel like it deserves that much hate. Jessica Simpson was trying there. Like there, there was a very, there was a, there was a very real attempt to get the feeling of the Dukes of Hazard show in that movie. Yeah. Like, like I, I, I can rip on Jessica Simpson for a lot. That's not one of them. The film no, exactly. won for most intrusive musical score. It won for worst on-screen couple between Jamie Kennedy and anyone forced to co-star with him. Cal Penn was nominated for most annoying male accent. He lost to Norm Macdonald and Deuce Bigelow European Gigolo. The film was nominated for least special special effects. It lost to Alone in the Dark. And it won for worst sequel and foulest family film. Yikes. Yeah, that's a that is a bad that's the back of a hockey card if I've ever seen one. Right. That that is not the thing you want to put on the poster of the film when you're when you're marketing no. that ish. That probably not. That probably affected the budget though, or at least the, the box office. This film had a budget of approximately eighty-four million dollars according to IMDB. Domestically, it only grossed seventeen and worldwide only 60 million dollars when it was released on the president's day long weekend that's the february 18th 2005 long weekend it debuted at number four and was the lowest of three films that were debuting that weekend the the highest grossing film what in its second week was hitch with 36 million and if you tuned in last week, you already know what the number two film was. That's Constantine. Then it was because of Winn-Dixie, Son of the Mask, debuted with only $9 million in its first week. What a wild week at the cinema there. What a wild week. Like Constantine because of Winn-Dixie and this. Right. Just you are... You are not spending $11 on anything worthwhile that weekend if you walked into a Cineplex. But the reason why we are here, and not because you hate me and you know maybe watch this film, is because of the <laughs> critics. This film over at Metacritic has a meta score of 20. And over at Rotten Tomatoes, the audience score is 16%. And the tomatometer is a paltry 6%. Yikes. I'm not surprised by the tomatometer because, you know, critics are going to critic all over the place. The audience score, though, at 16%. Like, I get there are people who do like just straight up fart joke slapstick type humor, and this kind of serves it on a platter. But are you surprised at the low audience score? I, I am. And in a world where in 2023, we can look back on this over a decade later and, and see in retrospect that this wasn't a good idea. But this was in a time where there wasn't unnecessary sequels coming out for everything like there seems to be today. But this still might be the most blatant example of an unnecessary sequel. And I think the fans of the original really came out of the woodwork when it comes to that audience score. I mean... Let, let's check this off by the numbers here. Your original star, uh, not in it. 
his co-star not in it the director not directing it the writer not writing it like if you have nothing from the original except for ben freaking stein don't just just don't i'm I'm sorry agreed don't you you are asking for punishment at this point absolutely and especially with like there was there were some people i saw that defended it that said well dark horse was still involved and they were the ones that produced the comic books this is all originally based off of but at the same time that's that's not really a valid argument because in the comic books the mask stayed on the same guy for the whole run like that's the whole point not even necessarily saying that would have saved this movie i don't think stanley ipkiss jim carrey's character was 100 percent necessary for a sequel but you had to have something that's close to that first movie this is truly a movie named after the mask that barely even has the mask in it right like put it into perspective here like again spoilers like a mofo but if you tune into this podcast on a regular basis you know this by now but be forewarned spoilers like a mofo here's the problem with son of the mask right from the get-go okay we know what the mask does to the person who wears it. And you have a baby involved there by the son of the mask. But you have the dog wearing the mask. And your first thought is, what did the dog do with the mask on? Yeah. That's where it really comes into play. And that's, that is, like I said, the heart of this whole thing is that you don't see somebody put on the mask physically until well over half an hour into the movie. And then you don't see it again, a human person. You see the dog put on the mask for the majority of the movie. You don't see another human person with the mask on until the end game, the final like 20 minutes. So it's a son of the mask movie. And I counted on screen the amount of times you actually see the physical wooden mask. And it's like 10. And Jimmy Kennedy only has it like twice. Twice. And I bet you it's for a grand total of about 20 minutes of the runtime, I think. Which is about 20 minutes more of Jamie Kennedy than we ever really need. But let's get into the breakdown of this here. Let's talk about Jamie Kennedy as Tim Avery. How was he for you? For me, see, I, I like I said, this is like four different movies that all show flashes of greatness thrown into a blender and just the product is just foul. I think the idea of having a cartoon, like a cartoon creator get a hold of a thing that turns him into his work. I think that on paper is, is amazing. I think the idea there is great, but it's the fact that he's trying to be Stanley Ipkiss doing that thing instead of being, I think it was a banker or an investment person in the first movie. It's that that ruins it for me. I think Jamie Kennedy just spends this entire movie trying to make Jim Carrey like moves and references. And the other part of it, he's just being a bad dad. Once you realize that Tim Avery is named that to kind of pay homage to Tex Avery, a uh, longtime animator back in the day, um, you can kind of see where the impetus for the idea of the storyline, at yeah. least as far as the character goes. So I'm, I'm fine with Tim Avery being a cartoonist who stumbles upon this mask. But, I mean, here's the thing. If Tim Avery just used the mask... Um, and then had to try to document the things that he did with the mask on to create this character. And then it becomes this, I'm the character that I'm creating, but I can't, I got to stop being the character because it's driving my family apart. That would have been a brilliant 
brilliant exactly much a much better idea you know created in about 13 seconds you're welcome but the problem here is that jamie kennedy who is the star of this film feels like an afterthought in the plot of the film he comes in absolutely he puts a mask on knocks his wife up and then he's literally the victim of of the antics of everybody else in the film when your main star is the afterthought, you've written the movie poorly. Absolutely, and it does. It takes the spotlight completely off of him and therefore the mask as well because he gets it on, like I said, for that one big musical number, comes home, which I guess mask powers are sexually transmitted in this universe because it, it passes on to the baby. So the baby ends up with mask powers, which just creates a plot hole hurricane to me when the baby comes out with mask powers. Like... What does this mean for like Tim completely falls to the back of the of the movie and it's all about the baby for the majority of it. And then the dog gets the mask. So Tim's kind of out in the background watching this whole fight happen. And again, it feels like four or five different movies kind of bashing into each other. The cartoonist with the mask. That's a great idea. The cartoonist with a baby that has cartoon powers. That's a great idea. Even like the classic, like you said, the Looney Tunes, the dog versus the baby. I would if that was the whole basis of the movie, it would be good. But it's the fact that all of these things are trying to share the spotlight with that mask at the same time and have it all tie together in a nice little bow. It just it just doesn't work. There's way too many moving parts and there's way too many people being this crazy cartoonish outlandish character when the first one was so good because you had this normal everyday like office world and there was only one of those crazy zany characters that was just exploding into it kind of thing there was an interesting moment in this film and you know because because we're here to try to find the good things to say about it there was an interesting moment in this film where i'm like this is where the heart could be in the film so tim avery's character is kind of a reluctant grown-up at this point you know he you know when we first meet the couple he's very hesitant about the idea of having kids he's he's not there yet and then of course he gets the mask on knocks up his wife nine very 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 quick months later they have a kid um by the way passage of time in this film is an illusion oh it makes no sense exactly no sense just just bear with us all on this one here um but here's the thing right he's a he's he's unsure of himself as a father there's these moments where he's like you know he wants to be strong for his wife because he loves her he's trying to wrap his head around the idea of being a dad even though he's still kind of a kid at heart himself and then there's this moment near the end where he's trying to get the baby to come back to him while he's got the mask on and it isn't until he takes the mask off that the kid realizes oh that's my dad kind of thing and there's that moment if they had spent more time on Jamie Kennedy with the mask and then Jamie Kennedy without the mask and both characters trying to lay claim to the to the parentage of the child kind of thing and it becomes a you know not necessarily a coming of age but a coming of maturity story for Tim again a much better story where you have a dual personality even though it's the same person the mask feels like the kid wouldn't have happened without the mask uh tim's like yeah but kind of my body and it's kind of my kid and if we if we went on maury povich i'm pretty sure i'd be the father but it's again you had the basis there but you went for slapstick instead 
yeah, they they basically just said what worked about the first one. Well, everybody loved, you know, Jim Carrey banging on maracas, doing big dance numbers, pulling stuff out of his pants and fighting bad guys with it. Let's just throw as much of that as we can into this from Tim with the mask on to the baby. Uh, quite what, one of the things I did like about it, even though it's crazy in the long run, is the baby learning all of his powers and like what to do from being stuck in front of the TV and watching literal Looney Tunes cartoons. I thought that was great. But again, just you could have that cake and eat it, too without having so many moving parts and so many different characters that are supposed to be like this big bombastic, like explosion of Acme Looney Tunes humor. You could do that, with just him. And like you said, have him flip flop back and forth with the baby and the dog kind of in the mix at the same time, instead of giving them all the powers and therefore making it kind of feel like nobody's really that special. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing with the dog wearing the mask, it's, you don't need that. All the dog needs to do is be cute and be the sounding board for Tim so he can, you know, talk to the dog and use it as exposition so we understand his uncertainties and, you know, his feelings of inadequacy as a father. That's all you need. That's all you need. And if he wanted the dog to be super cartoony for a change, he transforms a car into whatever that monstrosity is at the end that he chases Jamie Kennedy down with have him like turn the dog into a cartoon one of my favorite parts of the movie is the little animated bits that show what the dog is thinking when the dog first transforms he has this animated like thought in his head of how he wants to destroy the baby and that's how he's going to get jamie kennedy to love him again and then there's the other one where he's drawing the blueprint of the plan i love that kind of stuff so if you wanted to just have tim turn the dog animated for a couple of scenes if you wanted to get that craziness in instead of the dog quite literally hoarding the mask and somehow outsmarting human beings for the entire nine months she was pregnant in the movie the dog just had the mask buried in his doghouse and i guess was waiting for the right time to like break out this biblical thing to use against his own family yeah, I mean, the dog doesn't want the baby around. Tim's not sure if he's good enough to be a father, and Trailer has pissed off to New York to, to to go for work. It's like, does no one want this kid around? Like, Son of the Mask feels like a, an albatross as opposed to a movie title. Yeah, it does. Like, nobody here seems like they're a good parent. <laughs> like, in the first, like, year of this baby's life, it is left alone far too much in a room by itself. All right, let's talk about the other parent here. Trailer Howard as uh, playing Tanya Avery. I liked her in this one, but I want to hear your thoughts. I, I did too. I think she played a really good straight man to the entire thing. Uh, obviously, there's a little bit of blissful unawareness, like when the baby's blowing uh, his head up like a balloon and she's sitting right in front of it and her child's head has grown like 30 times the size and she doesn't notice. But you have to kind of check your brain at the door for those kinds of little things. We'd be picking this apart all day. But I think she does a really good job of being a believable love interest for a character like Jamie Kennedy's. Jamie Kennedy's character is essentially a man child and she does play the character well of somebody who would support that kind of person. She does believe in his cartoons. She has an extremely successful business. So like there's a reason that money's not 100 percent tight. It's I think it's a really good character. And I think she is one of the better parts of this movie. Exactly. And I love the dynamic that you have. You know, uh, basically a man child of a husband, right? Not horribly yeah. so. He's doing his best. Um, I would have liked to have seen Trailer Howard interact more with the mask and more so in, as opposed to, uh, oh, he, he has confidence now. Now I'm aroused. Like, really? 
really? How do you not know that's your husband? Like, that's one thing that I was thinking. Like, when they come home do and do the deed to have the kid, my thought in my head is, how do you know your husband doesn't have demonic powers at that moment? Right? Like, I, I, can't, I can't seem to, I can't conjure up an image in my mind where, like, that was the most normal 12-hour night of your life. Like, if he had the mask on, there was probably, like, crazy stuff flying all over that room. And you're laying there thinking, oh, yeah, it's just him. He just has his confidence back now. What about the green? What about the green skin, orange hair, and giant teeth? Like, did you not notice this? Like, like, let me try to explain this here, and and I'm gonna drop a music video reference here. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, you have to go watch the video. But when Jamie Kennedy puts on the mask, he looks like he's in the music video for Primus's Winona's Big Brown, Big Brown Beaver, big plastic orange hair. Like, it, it, yeah, like, how do you like? At some point, she's got to run her fingers through that 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 claymation head of his. Did you not feel anything different? And did he not take off the mask at some? Because when you take off the mask, obviously you go full tornado mode. And that's one of the things that was kind of thrown to the wayside. Whenever Jim Carrey transformed in the first movie, he kind of had to duck into an alley or a phone booth like Superman a little bit because he knew, oh my goodness, this is going to be like this huge kick up a dust storm kind of thing they're doing it and jamie kennedy does it in a vehicle pulling into like a super crowded parking lot for a halloween party no one's going to be like what's going on in that vehicle why, why is it why is there a hurricane in there and again they had an opportunity to explore uh the marriage dynamic here yes confidence is sexy but uh, you know but also yes um like dedication to your craft and to your dream is also sexy as well if Jamie Kennedy had the mask on more and it was more of a dual personality thing trying to deal with parenting, you could then see um, tra- you know, uh, Tanya's connection to both characters and you know how she anchors the real Tim back to this reality. And, and it's true because you see it towards the end of the movie when she's finally let in on what's happening. Like she, she rolls with it pretty good. So I do think that there's a huge missed opportunity there. I don't think she should have gone to New York. She should have stayed there. And the process should have been them both learning to deal with what they've done here in creating this basically like a demigod of a baby that has cartoon abilities. And I do, I, like I said, I think it's two or three movies mashed in together. And one of them would have been really good. Even give her a turn with the mask. I would have rather seen a character like that, put the mask on someone that's a little bit more straight laced, which we haven't seen. Everybody that's put on the mask human wise has been the main character who's always kind of this shy down on their luck. I don't know how to express myself. So when I put this on, I get this huge boost of confidence. So what happens when it gets given to somebody who does have all the confidence in the world? Her character is the head of a fashion company. She makes brochures. She's going to New York for big business meetings. What happens when somebody that has all the confidence in the world gets this thing? Right. I mean, and we saw that a little bit in Venom. When Michelle Williams and the symbiont formed and all of a sudden it's like, yeah, okay, now I'm, I'm saving, you know, him. And, you know, it kind of, the, the symbiont kind of helps the two of them together kind of thing. That could have been that moment in this, but it's not. Yes. No, because unfortunately we have an entire two or three different subplots about dog versus baby, uh, literal gods versus the baby. Tim trying to be a good father and also trying to hide the fact that his entire house is being demolished from the inside out uh, from his 
nosy neighbor who quite literally becomes a nosy neighbor in one of the funniest sight gags in the movie. Yeah, that that was one of those rare, actually decent laugh moments here. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. But since you mentioned gods, literal gods, let's talk about, let's talk about a god of an actor, Alan Cumming. As Loki, <laughs> I, I, I got to give him props. I like Alan coming here. Um, but how was he for you? See, this is this is the thing. I think he's my favorite part of this movie because I think he is another aspect of one of those movies that was blended together that could have been really good. I like the idea of Loki coming back to Earth and saying enough of this. It's too much chaos. I'm taking my mask back. That as a plot point, I think is amazing. I think the execution here is what faltered. The having to go door to door in different disguises. Like you're a god that can travel across the universe, but you don't, you can't pinpoint your exact location here. You can't drop a pin on your iPhone. Oh, there it is. Like it's uh, it's it's interesting to me. I think the idea on paper is fantastic. And I think Alan Cummings plays a good Loki. I, I think he's really good. Even when he goes full kiss Loki and his face turns green and he's got weird tribal tattoos. I think it works. It's just like I said, there's too much stuff going on around it for that plot to to come out making sense. Yeah, I mean, obviously you can't have a Tom Hiddleston malevolent type Loki. That's not this type of film. No. Um, and I no. feel bad for anyone ever 
who plays the character of Loki, the god of mischief, because you're going to be compared to Tom Hiddleston no matter what era of film you were in, because Tom Hiddleston is just the the embodiment of that character. Oh, he's the guy. He's yeah. the guy. But Alan Cumming is pretty good, and I like the fact that, I mean, when you look at the character of Loki as it is, you know, he's the god of mischief because he's trying to seek Odin's love um, and acceptance, but can't get it. So he, this is him acting out. This, this is, this is the child, you know, like having a tantrum because daddy isn't paying attention to him. You know, so this mask that he created as a way to get attention now has his attention. And it's one of those things where it's like, well, now I have to get the mask in order to be the good son for Odin. There, there is that dynamic here where Loki is, you know, he feels so much like he, he wants to be the good son, which parallels Tim trying to be the good dad. There's those moments in this film where Tim humanizes Loki in a way. And I like that part about this, like that whole the the, the 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 resolution at the end, it almost feels like they wrote the ending first and said, okay, this is going to be really good, and then tried to fill the rest of the film with a bunch of madcap antics beforehand. Like, how do we get to this point? Because that moment feels like it should have been. Absolutely, and I completely agree because there is, like like you said, that kind of parallel where Tim is like, you could have that flip-flop side of the coin. He's like, do I need the mask to do this? Or do I, can I just be Tim and also be a good dad? Loki, it's the same thing. He loses his powers and it's like, okay, what do I do now? It's, do, am I Loki with, with the powers? Am I still a son of Odin, even though I don't have my godly powers? Then when he does get them back, it's only for an hour. And like, like you said, that is where things really start to be. Like you see the glimmers of hope. Like, man, this could have been really good. You could have had that dichotomy on the opposite side where instead of a dad trying to be a good son without the mask it was a son trying to be a good son to his dad without being this crazy mischief making thing that's just a blip on his radar only because of all the noise that he makes i also love this loki because he's not necessarily like a murderous monster god either he likes the baby he says when the baby is getting taken away from him i just wanted a friend and he meant it because he just felt like he wanted somebody who was like him. I do think there are some great, great pieces of this movie, and Loki is almost every single one of them. The only times I found myself genuinely laughing at mask-like antics, it was when Loki was doing them. Yeah. I mean, Alan Cumming you know, walks onto the screen and just owns the moment every time, really no matter what the film is. you know. And this is one of those instances where it's almost like, you know... <sighs> I, as, as much as I want to say Son of the Mask, it'd be, I would I would watch a Loki movie like this, you know, where he has to get the mask back and, and track down all these people who have who have used the mask. Like, you didn't need Tim Avery. You didn't need that whole family. This is a different movie that could have happened. Um, but instead, you're right. They've kind of Franken-filmed a bunch of different ideas. But at least they got the character of Loki right. But since we're talking gods here, let's jump onto Bob Hoskins in the, albeit small role, but still old nevertheless, of Odin. Yeah, that was honestly, like when I was a kid, I didn't appreciate how big of an actor it was that was in that position. Rewatching it now, you just can't help but get that feeling of like, man, what are you even doing here? You know what I mean? 
Well, we also have to remember, too, that, you know, this isn't that long, you know, since the release of the original Super Mario Brothers movie that he was in. And who? Yeah, that didn't go very well. There was thought about that for timeline wise. There were some lean times for Bob Hoskins here. (laughs) But I mean, the thing is, that voice still comes across. And it's a commanding voice. It's a gruff voice. And that's the kind of tenor that you need um, to put Alan Cumming in his place. Like that roar, that presence of voice of Odin. And I think they handled him exactly well enough. And they, the makeup on him was good enough that it didn't just feel like Bob Hoskins in a, in a cheap, you know, discount party city Zeus costume. It, it, It felt like powerful. Yeah, he was very commanding. And one of the things I did remember, like, because I hadn't watched this for quite some time before I went back to rewatch it a couple times for this. Uh, one of the things I remember vividly was the Loki, like his his original yell to get Loki. Every time he, he they talk to each other, it starts off with that deep, gravelly, like yelling of Loki's name. Soon as he did that, it brought me right back. I was like 10 years old again. So I he again they didn't mess up the gods. The gods were one of the best parts of this movie. It's just unfortunate that uh, the main character wasn't. I mean, just to give you an idea of how commanding a presence Bob Hoskins has with that voice. According to IMDb, Bob Hoskins is nothing but a 5 foot 4 and a quarter inch tall. And yet the minute that voice hits the screen it feels like a godlike eight foot tall being has said it it he has just this command of his lungs i guess because everything he's in that's the thing i think you remember most is the voice one of my other favorite roles he did was santa claus and elf and he's because he sounds so good like he sounds so good in that role i didn't know he was five foot four and that makes me question that movie now because it's just like wow they had to do some trickery to make him not look very, very small there, but he is, he's just one of those actors. He's like, I'm going to, it's not the same family, but he is like Danny DeVito in a way where his voice carries him far farther than his body could. Well, I mean, you think about uh, as well, um, Dan Hedaya, that voice would have carried as well. Yes. Joe Pesci, that voice is a character unto itself. You know, and also don't forget the quarter inch. That that's that's where the extra godliness that's, height that's comes. That's where the in. extra umph comes from. Yeah. yeah. Five foot five foot four and a quarter, and don't you damn well forget that quarter. That helmet he was wearing too. That's another good foot and a half. Those that big gold winged helmet. They had the costume design was great. Yeah. For Loki as well. The the black leather jacket, which kind of transformed depending on what he was doing. It was a really good look. The uh the uh the grungy spiked hair with like the really sticky looking uh spike strips coming off it. He looked like uh an anime protagonist, someone at a Digimon, Loki did. And I think it I think it really worked for the character here, especially in the time frame where it came out. And that's the thing, like Odin looked epic. You know, Loki looked fun. You spent all your money on makeup for those two, and you made the mask look like that when Jamie Kennedy had it on? Like at a Halloween party, no less. So you'd think at a Halloween party, the mask would go all out on some kind of costume. There are so many opportunities for pop culture references there you're at a halloween party but instead we got the dance number yeah which again you're literally cribbing from the previous movie like just do something new just do something new i think 
I think the dance number is the point when a lot of people I've read a lot of reviews and a lot of them point to the same thing. The dance number was when they realized, oh, no, this is not going to be what we wanted. That was kind of the where the velvet rope dropped was right at that dance number when people realized this is not going to be good. Yeah. Let's get to some of the smaller roles in here. I'm going to start with Stephen Wright, who played Daniel Moss. I mean, he's Stephen Wright being Stephen Wright, but how was he as as Tim Avery's boss for you? I, I think this is another one of those, like, the plot I wish it had, because I think that was a really cool dynamic that he had with Tim Avery, this this kind of revered cartoonist that's the head of the company where Tim works. And I loved looking at the fake posters behind him on the wall. Like, there was Bad Dolphins, and um, there was another one that was like twin popes or something like that. I thought his character was nice. And I loved how he saw Tim Avery do the song and dance at the Halloween party. And that's when he brings him into his office. And he's like, this, this has vision. This has some kick to it. He, he does seem like somebody who I would not bat an eye if they told me that was his actual job, that he ran a cartoon company. And, and there's the thing. Like, I'm glad you pointed out the fact that, you know, the mask shows up at the Halloween party. That's what that's what sparks Daniel's interest in getting uh, this character or Tim to create this character for a comic strip. Um, and that's where you could have had um, the weight of I need to wear the mask in order to do things that will inspire me to draw cartoons. But I also don't want to wear the mask because the mask is trying to take away my child from me. Um, like, again, simplify the plot take out the looney tunes get rid of the dog and you have a much better film because you could have had him what does every every cartoon has the same character just in another different situation right so you could have had so much potential there like okay well what happens when the mask goes to the laundry so tim would go to the laundromat and put the mask on just to see what would happen that could have replaced the nine month wedding or the nine month pregnancy montage with the vampire babies dream at the end like There are so many places where you see where if you just did this instead of that, you could have really had something here with the fact that he is a cartoonist. I think that is one of the best gems that they left kind of unshined was the fact that Tim was a cartoon artist trying to make a show out of what he was at the mask. And they just kind of let that fall to the background for the dog versus baby. Yeah. And that's like I know that this there was an original longer cut of this film and jamie kennedy has come out and said that yeah the longer cut it had more nuance it had more character development um it 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 had more it was a better film but of course they had to cut it down to to get it to what the studio wanted and that's where the we ended up with this and uh, you know characters like cal penn as george um suffer for that because you barely see cal penn like we don't like it's a big name actor we are literally like what a year after harold and kumar you have yeah, Cal Penn. Long. yeah like use the good actors that you have but how in the limited amount of screen time that he had how was cal Penn for you you see that's the thing he was kind of relegated to just being like go do it man go do it like he was the friend pushing the other friend to take that leap of faith and go talk to the head of the animation department but other than that the only two real significant parts he had was when a uh, scantily clad woman was the that he was going after was thrusted into his lap by mask Jamie Kennedy at the Halloween party. And then at the very, very end where, of course, he gets his cartoon and he is the dad mocapping for the dad and the, the son and the dog show that uh, Tim ends up making 
off of the adventure with the mask. So it really was kind of a waste of him because you only see him really speaking and getting significant time in that first meeting when he tells Tim to kind of go take your leap of faith. And then after that, it was all just over the phone. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't believe I'm drawing back to this film as a way to you know make th- something better. But I'm going to draw back to Green Lantern. Yeah, I can't believe I just said that. Ooh. You had this moment where Ryan Reynolds puts on the ring in front of Taika Waititi and he's showing him kind of what's going on. We needed that moment between Tim and George where, you know, Tim puts the mask on, shows him kind of who it really is kind of thing. And then George could then go around and film him in the mask so he can kind of use that as reference for these cartoons. And so you have George who's the witness to the mask and what he does. And then he has to talk to Tim say, yeah, um, we might need to stop this because look at this footage, right? And then seeing how the mask is reacting with Tanya and all that and realize that he's, he's being pulled away from his, his wife. And like, again, I can't believe we're writing a better son of the mask film in talking about like, we're what 45 minutes into the show and we've already come up with so many different ways to make this a better film just take our give us the money we'll write the next one absolutely and i this killed other sequels i think there is plans for other things to come out of this but the property has been kind of dropped after it because it just it bombed so hard but honestly when push comes to shove on my watchings of it the thing that really torpedoed it and this is unfortunate because the dog is a fantastic actor uh the dog that is what really put the final nail into the coffin here was they spent so much screen time on the dog. And I think that is what they really, really thought that this was going to appeal to people about, oh, it's a cartoon. It's a real cartoon character because it's not a person and he's trying to get the baby. And on paper, it looks good. But in practice, it's just so much of the dog and the baby. It's all CGI. And oh, my goodness, it just that's where it really falls apart for me. Yeah, I mean. If you take a look at it, you have the director of Cats and Dogs, which we've already said has its charms. Like, it's a fun family film. And, you know, I remember, you know, showing it to my kids when when they were young and whatnot. And they got a kick out of it because it's exactly what the kids want. And here you have a dog with the mask on. So on paper, that matchup makes sense. But then you have to realize, oh, wait, there's humans we have to deal with, too. Hmm. And it's another it's a series. It's you're you're coming off of a movie that was completely different from this. And Cats and Dogs knew exactly what it was. Like you said it was a fun romp. The villain was a big white spoiled fluffy cat named Mr. Sprinkles. Like that's hilarious. It's and there's nothing that it's fouling by going off of it. It's its own thing in its own little bubble, but they're taking a whole different concept for a movie, kind of a gangster flick. There was violence in the first movie. And it just got morphed into, I what do you even call it, a sequel? A remake is a good word for it, I think, because it really just feels completely separated uh, from the first one. I just want to put this into perspective for a second, okay? The original Cats and Dogs film that came out in 2001 uh, has a 53% tomatometer, according to Rotten Tomatoes. So it actually does qualify, and I still would defend that one, but it's a borderline. But then it goes downhill from there. 2010, Cats and Dogs, The Revenge of Kitty Galore has Galore. a 13% tomatometer. And I was today years old when I found out that Cats and Dogs 3 Paws Unite exists. 
released in 2020 with an 11 percent 2020 this just came out i didn't know that existed either right i'm just sitting there looking at this going oh crap there's a third someone thought that was a good idea it's just like anything that makes a remotely little bit of money especially around kids People will just fire them out until they're told not to, I think, at this point. Hollywood has never and will never listen to W.C. Fields. Never. Never, ever will. Ben Stein, the only actor to carry over from the original film. Again, small part, small role. How was he for you? I think he was uh, honestly part of one of the strongest, if not the strongest, scene in the entire movie, which was the opening. I think the opening of this movie really set the tone and gets you excited because it has this really dark thunderstorm night. It comes on Edge City, the same city from the first movie, and it has Ben Stein next to Mr. Attenborough, probably the best narrator you could get for anything if you're trying to make it sound serious, going through these fake gods of another culture, and then all of a sudden he comes up with the Hall of Norse mythology, lightning bolts, cracks, Starts talking about Balder, Loki, Thor. It sets it up amazing. Loki attacks, uh, hangs his face in the holder where the mask should have been because it was, of course, a fake that was made in Taiwan. I think Stein was fantastic. He he was just doing Ben Stein things. But I really do think the opening in this movie might have been its strongest scene because it hadn't been messed up yet. And like we said, the thought of the plot point of, oh, man, Loki's here and he's going after whoever has the mask. That was really exciting up until you realize what was going on with the mask at that time. I mean, you didn't need Loki chasing down kids. I completely agree. No. But I love the idea of him going to all these museums and antiquity shops and finding them all like, you know, forgeries or made in Taiwan or made like in these different countries. Like, And you could have had fun with the town names. You had you know, Edge City being like the, the main one from the first film. And then you had Fringe City. You could have had him go to Border Town. You could have had Which, him what go. What was it? It was like 276 miles southwest of Edge City was Fringe City. That's funny. Like it's, that is funny. Yeah. Like it's. There, there are some decent little written moments in this film that when you look back and go, oh, okay, that's that's clever, that's witty, that's funny on paper kind of thing. And I hope it translated to the theaters like, oh, I get it, edge, then fringe, I, I, I got it, you know. Um, but yeah, you, you could have, again, taken the whole baby with mask powers out of the equation, have it focus on a guy dealing with the duality of being the mask and being the guy in the mask and Loki trying to track down the mask, a simplified plot, which still gives you room for madcap antics with the mask. And then all of a sudden, again, Dark Horse Comics, Lyle and I are ready to write this film. Do you know where to send your money? Please, please do. I would do it for free at this point, almost just to save this because I do think the concept is just so fantastic it's lightning in a bottle literally what happens if you found like this simple little thing that could turn you into anything you want to be like it the, the concept is amazing and they so easily could have had their cake and ate it too even if it was just Loki searching for the mask you know what if you want to have the baby bounce off walls and like sing like the frog from Looney Tunes put the bait put the mask on the baby for a bit just have the mask be more of a central point of it. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like the mask could all of a sudden be on the baby and like, aha, uh-huh, now, now you're in trouble. You you can't have this back now. I'm taking yeah, this. How I'm do you taking get it kid. off. Exactly. 
right? And then he's got to work together with Loki to get the mask. Kind of like it's ah, why aren't we There's ready? So films? many right there's so many threads or if you wanted to like have the dog be the have the baby be completely normal and just be a, a defenseless baby and then the dog gets jealous and puts it on then it's then it's a little bit better because it's not dog versus baby it's just oh now we have to stop the dog from building a rue goldberg trap out of the house to hurt a defenseless baby like see again much better film it doesn't need to be dog versus baby then you have it's basically mask versus tim through the baby Again, yes. brilliance, brilliance, I say. And and it's all there, which I think is the most frustrating part of the movie and why I think it's not that bad. We're going to like ding, hit the button title. Right. But I, I really do think that that's what it is. There are glimmers here. And that's what I have whenever I went back, when I went back and watched this, I have written down. There's something right there. It just gets muddled up with trying to do all those other things at the exact same time. Even if you made like, I don't know, make it two movies or something if you wanted to try to shoehorn all of it in. But I just think there's a really good story and a really good premise here for a sequel that you don't need to try to do Jim Carrey. You don't have to because it's a completely different concept. It's not man with the mask trying to figure out how it works. It's okay. well, we all know the mask. Now Loki's here to get it. And it just so happens that Tim is unlucky enough to have his turn with it when Loki shows up. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. The mask itself kind of creates you know that 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 dual personality again you could have it as a, a just spitballing here you could have a movie where you have like a stand-up comedian who's doing their best to work the clubs and be funny and they get like the pity laughs kind of thing finds the mask puts the mask on does shows all of a sudden they're a huge hit and they're on like you know all the, the late night talk shows and going on tour and playing arenas as far as doing like comedy goes. But it's that duality of I want to live this life, but the only way I can live it is being somebody else. I wish they'd just see me again. Mask three, you're welcome. Yeah, and it's fantastic. And even the idea, one of the one of my the other good parts about Loki going door to door, I thought in my head, imagine if he wasn't looking for kids Imagine if he was going door to door talking to previous people who had run-ins with the mask because it never really tells us in the movie how long has passed since Stanley Ipkiss had it and threw it into the river. They just find it floating on a stream. So you could have fun. Who knows what's happened since then, right? Weave in some some actual real-life characters that have had that mask. Maybe like somebody we know, a famous television personality, it can hint at, well, they had it from this year to this year. And that's when their career was on the highest point. He goes to one guy's door. He's a millionaire because the mask helped him be like a master, a magician or something like that. He goes to another door and or goes to another guy who had it. He's living under a bridge because it completely ruined his life being what is basically like a demon Looney Tune. Okay. Hear me out here. Internet world, hear me out here. Hollywood, I recognize there's a writer strike on. Also, pay your writers. But yes. hear me out on this one here, okay? The mask is gotten by a YouTuber with a very small channel. Okay. <laughs> hear me hear me out on this one. Yo, channel's not launching kind of thing. It's like, you know, maybe you get a viewer two here and they're like, oh sorry, I clicked on the wrong video. Mm. Um Gets the mask, starts doing antics on camera. Loki has to track down the mask by watching all these videos and tracking down the people who were affected by the mask. And then all of a sudden, like, you're trying to stop this viral sensation that is the mask that you created. Again, 
Hollywood, you're welcome. It's so, and that's what I mean. It just seems like it's a difficult notion to fumble as hard as it got fumbled. I don't know if it was like they had all the toys in the toy box. They didn't really know what to do with it. Or if the concept is so vast that once you get pushed down to once you get pushed to shove and you have the money, it's difficult to narrow it because there's so many ideas you could do with it. But I struggle to look at the finished product and it's like you had everything you needed. Like you have what is essentially the ultimate MacGuffin. Like I really do see the mask as the ultimate MacGuffin in the fact that you can have it do or be whatever you want it to be. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you could, and this is going to sound like a really messed up idea, but hear me out on this one here, my American listeners. The mask runs as a third-party candidate for the President of the United States of America. Yes. And you have Democrats that- and Republicans trying to figure out how to stop this character that the, of the mask that's doing much better in the polls than any of them ever could. You're what welcome. What happens, like, like you said, stand-up comedian... Uh, a politician what happened it just gets on anybody like you could there's so many feasible options you have for like imagine if it did this imagine if it did that and i do think up there like i said cartoon person a cartoon artist and animator is a great idea because you can really get into some meta humor and some very nuanced stuff with that but at the same time don't throw it away for the dog and the baby just give it to tim yeah and let's see this duality play out of like i'm trying to be my ideal cartoon but at the same time like trying to keep it hidden from everybody i'm just trying to picture the mask three president mask yep i can, <laughs> I can see it now. the mask of a nation right there we go oh dear god We're ben steins is campaign manager yes yes and yes or as vice president one of the two Yep. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you your future president of the United States of America, the mask. And he's just dressed as Uncle Sam all the time. The mask person. <laughs> like, Oh, dear God. Someone's going to make this film and we're going to have to apologize. We're going to feel bad. Yeah. We're going to feel really, really bad. We're going to see a trailer for this in like six months and then we're going to just hate what we've created. Well, no. First, we're going to go out and get the paycheck for the idea that we sparked and then we're going to feel yep. bad about it. Okay. Exactly. So, just so we're aware here. Okay. One of the things we need to talk about, though, is the CGI in this. Um I recognize that, you know, when they made the first mask movie, one of the big selling points is like, well, Jim Carrey's face is basically plastic as it is. And he could do so much and it was easy to work with. Here, there's a lot of CGI that just does not hold up on this one. The baby is is unsettling at times. It really is, especially when he goes full cartoon on Tim that first time when he's trying to drive him crazy. There are several close-up shots of the baby's face that just, they look pretty rough. By today's standards, obviously. We're talking about a movie that came out in 2005. But still, you have to look at it through that lens because if you're re-watching it, you have to take it for what it is. And yeah, there are times with the dog where he's moving so fast, you can't almost make out what he's actually doing. Yeah, I want anyone who goes into any of these Marvel and DC films and complains about the CGI, I want you to go back, watch this film, and then shut the f*** up. Because you you want bad CGI, I got a movie for you, it's Son of the Mask. Yeah, the tornadoes especially, you can really, oof. it's just kind of, uh, what's what's it called, techno-gore, I believe, when everything just gets rattled up. Yeah, no, it's uh, it does not hold up at all and it's a shame because it takes away from it and you're right the baby is creepy af 
I have not seen a more disturbing baby on screen since Allie McBeal. No, especially when it tries to be creepy and they're in the car and it does the exorcist head turn. It's like, okay, you're succeeding in being scary more than I think you want to. Right. Although how did we not get dancing Allie McBeal baby baby moment in this film with this baby? It's true. There there's even with the baby, there's a lot of low hanging fruit that it just didn't seem like they had the basket for. (laughs) Oh, I think you just described this entire movie in one yes. succinct sentence right there. And that's why it's so frustrating because I know that like I loved it as a kid because it had so much crazy nonsense. And now that I'm older, I'm like, man, this has too much crazy nonsense and not in the right places. I just I think the premise is there that the timeline is there. They just really fumbled the bag and who to focus on. All right. It is come time. So, Lyle, I'm going to ask you now, who is your MVP of son of the mask it's alan coming has to be i think loki is the thing that ties this movie together every time he's on the screen i am having fun and most of the gags where it's the cartoony mask person pulling crazy stuff out of their pockets and doing crazy things it, i'm having the most fun when it's him i i can't disagree with that alan coming is absolutely my mvp but it was close it was close. I wanted to give it to Trailer Howard, but I just oh, don't wow. think that there was enough for her to do in this film for me to be able to give her the MVP. I, I Again, I thought she was great. I wish they had given her more screen time because I think that's what Tim needed in this film. He needed his anchor. He needed someone to call out the madness that he was going through in a loving, caring way. Tanya was doing that when she was there, but then they pulled her out of the whole situation. Yeah, and I I agree. I think if she was there more, like I said, the the trip to New York, if that didn't happen, and she was there for a lot of this, I think we'd be talking about a completely different movie here. Oh, absolutely. Although now, by the way, uh, Mask 3, President Mask, Trailer Howard as as the presidential candidate. I'm calling it now. She honestly, if there ever is a sequel, they have to have a female protagonist because the mat, we've never seen the mask on a woman. That would be so good. Like yes. so good. And you know who I'd like, I, this is just going into dream casting and this is, we're going far out there, but uh, Kate McKinnon. I don't, I can't, I can't argue that. I think she, I think she'd be fantastic. The whole time I was like, that was one of the big things I was thinking rewatching this is why doesn't she get the mask? Like a female, a female person with the mask on would be a great way to market it too, because it, this has never happened. What's it look like? And then I, my first get go gunshot thought was, oh, Kate McKinnon would be, she's already got the mask on. Like, right. I'm, I'm just trying to picture this now. Kate McKinnon stars as president mask. I can, I can I'm, see that. I'd pay for it. <laughs> Hollywood, listen to the show. We're, we're chock-a-block full of ideas in the episode. Uh, Lyle, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Where can our listeners hear you now, and where can they find you out on the internet? They can find me on my Twitter or on my Instagram. It's just at LYRobishaw, but I'm also a content producer at 6.40 a.m. Toronto. I rotate through the shows, but all of them are great. Give them a listen to Alex Pearson in the morning. Uh, we've got Toronto today, and we've also got uh, the Today in TO podcast on there. Give it a listen. A lot of fun stuff if you're in the six. Well, you know, you're always welcome back on the show. There, there is a, a, a warm seat on the microphone waiting for you whenever you have a really, really crappy movie you want me to watch. 
Oh, sir, I've got a laundry list of them. This probably will not be the last time your listeners hear of me, unfortunately. <laughs> Dude, thank you so much. Now to our listeners, a little bit of housekeeping beforehand. Obviously, as you well know, Twitter is an absolute show these days uh we are doing our best to keep you all updated on our website at notthatbadcast.com we're still on twitter at notthatbadcast so by all means find us there but weekly now we're going to be putting up blogs to let you know what we're working on which which episodes we're recording on which week so you please by all means pop by the website find out which movies we're recording and when and drop your comments on the film because we want to hear from you guys now you know the drill if there is a movie out there that you think is unfairly maligned or is so bad that you think there's no way in heck that we can find anything good to say about it, hit us up on Twitter while it lasts at NotThatBadCast or go to our website at NotThatBadCast.com. While you're there, make sure you check out the Coming Soon page because we have a few episodes there that I know you've seen, you like, you hate, you want to comment on it. Do so. Until next time, Lyle, thank you. Listeners, you guys are awesome. This is It's Not That Bad. Take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.